we begin. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy and goodness that you have shown to our country in ages past and for your work among your church in this land. We pray that you would continue this work, that you would have mercy upon us and upon our land, that you would bless this time of instruction as we seek to learn from this history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk about Presbyterians and American independence, Uh, but before that, just two brief notes um, kind of following up from last week. Um, One note about the negatives of the Great Awakening that I mentioned last time, like there are positives, a few negatives. On the one hand, many of the new side ministers backed away in time from the extremes of the movement, and I wanted to make that clear. Uh, For example, Gilbert Tennant, one of the new side ministers, would come to affirm that communicant membership was to be based on an orthodox profession and a regular life, rather than what he called the precarious foundation of the church's judgment concerning men's inward experiences of a work of invisible grace. Um, And he would actually differ with with Jonathan Edwards, for example, on that matter. Um, how, How much does one have to prove his conversion Um, Or do you look more for an orthodox profession and and a regular life in conformity to that? Not not scandalous in any way. Um, On the other hand, so on the one hand, they did moderate and, and, you know, have more unity when they reunited. On the other hand, the regrettable features or the excesses that I mentioned would continue to have some influence and would resurface in later controversies and movements and indeed continue to be an aspect of evangelicalism today. Uh, So some of those things that we talked about might sound a little familiar because they'll be a reoccurring element of American church history. My other uh, point before we get started is that there are, or there were, uh, two other small groups of Presbyterians that arrived in uh, in America. kind of outside the mainstream of Presbyterianism. There was the Reformed Presbytery, which was the Covenanters who had never rejoined the established Church of Scotland, that when it had, Presbyterianism had become established, uh, these Covenanters thought it was still too compromised and stayed outside and uh, continued as the Reformed Presbytery. A small group, but they, they, some of them moved to Pennsylvania. And then there were also the Associate Presbyterians, who separated from the established church in Scotland in 1733 due to several controversies, including some new policies from, uh, in Scotland that gave uh, important lay patrons more influence over who would be called as a minister in a church. Uh, there were other things, though, as, as well. So you had these two groups that kind of split off the mainstream already in Scotland and also came over. Um, often they had cordial, fraternal relations with the, the more mainstream Presbyterian church, the Senate of New York and Philadelphia. Um, and those two groups would unite and mix and split over the years. Um, some of them would rejoin with the larger Presbyterian church. Uh, the remaining churches in those traditions are the RPCNA, uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, and the ARPC, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. So all along there, there are these, uh, you know, a couple other Presbyterian groups that are in America outside the main body that we're looking at. Today, though, looking at 
Presbyterians and American independence and uh, the war for independence, the, the founding era. And I want to start with Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, this was God's message to the Israelites in Babylon to seek the welfare of of Babylon while they sojourned there. Um, How much more should Christians seek the good of their own country? Um, You know, there's there's parallels, there's things that we would distinguish Old and New Testament, uh, but the Israelites had their own land and their own uh, country back in Israel, but even when they were in exile as, as a spiritual group in, a, in a, a country not their own, they were still supposed to seek uh, the welfare of the, the city in which they sojourned. And so uh, Christians, we have uh, our identity as, as the church, uh, but we also have a, a calling to serve the Lord in our callings, uh, to love our neighbors, and to seek the welfare of the, the country in which we live. And as we'll see in this period of history, uh, Presbyterians cared for their country. Uh, they were involved in the life of their country. Uh, they sought to, sought to promote virtue in society uh, and industry, and um, of course, promoting the gospel in their society as well. Uh, one important aspect of this and source of influence on both the church and the country was the College of New Jersey. We mentioned that last time that had succeeded the Log College. The College of New Jersey would later be uh, named Princeton College and then Princeton University. And here's, here's one fact. Of the 250 Presbyterian ministers who received ordination between 1758 and 1789, of the 250, 120 were graduates of the New Jersey. 20 came from Yale. The remainder were furnished by Newark Academy, the College of Philadelphia, Hampton-Sydney College, and the academy that eventually became Washington and Lee. So you have some smaller colleges that are out there, but the College of New Jersey has a large influence. Uh, Some of its early presidents included Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Davies, although both of their presidencies were cut rather short uh, due to their deaths. In 1768, a man from Scotland accepted an invitation to become president of the College of New Jersey. Uh, his name was John Witherspoon. Uh, six, uh, 1768, became the president of the College of New Jersey. He had been a pastor for a couple decades in Scotland. Uh, he had actually been taken prisoner by the Jacobite forces during uh, the rising of 45. Uh, he had become notable as a leader of the evangelical party, There was, in Scotland, the evangelicals and the moderates, and he had um, both promoted the doctrines of things like justification by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ, as well as written a piece that was kind of satirical on on the moderate party's approach to to the church, and in various ways uh, had gained a reputation, had a large church, was, was a preacher, And one advantage is that he had not been involved in the old side, new side controversy. So he was kind of a neutral third party here coming to uh, lead the college. Under his leadership, um, not only were there, uh, while he was president, 114 ministers of the gospel uh, trained, 
but as one book records, there was also a future uh, president of the United States, James Madison, a vice president, uh, 12 members of the Continental Congress, five delegates to the Constitutional Convention, 49 U.S. representatives, 28 senators, and three Supreme Court justices. So, uh, and, and Witherspoon was not only president, but he was also teaching. He was a professor of of moral philosophy and eloquence, and I'm forgetting a couple of the other classes that he taught, but uh, this would be one source of influence on uh, the American uh, country as, as it was founded. Well, the war started to come on around the same time that he arrived. In the 1760s, there was much uh, already in, in play. The French and Indian War had ended in 1763, and after that, British policy towards the colonies began to change. Um, British Parliament began claiming authority to tax and regulate the internal affairs of the colonies, an authority which the colonies argues was illegitimate, which belonged to their own representative legislatures. Each colony had one, and uh, that was the body where they had representation. Uh, Parliament, they would argue, only had authority to regulate external trade for the advantage of the mother country, uh, but not to raise revenue. And so they rightly saw this imposition as a usurpation, one that undermined their rights as British freemen and the security of their hard-won property. You know, if the British were in, in, in Great Britain were able to decrease their taxes by taxing the Americans more, you know, what would stop them from just taxing the Americans more and more and more? Because they would, it was in their advantage to, to do so. Another threat, though, that's less known today was that the British... Parliament was feared that they might attempt to impose a bishop on the colonies that would be aligned with the power of the state, a tyranny from which many of the colonists had sought to escape from. And this was something that, uh, whether or not the British were actually planning on doing so, many <coughs> Anglicans in the northern colonies were petitioning for such a bishop to be sent over. Uh, the, the Anglicans in the northern colonies were much more aggressive in trying to, to uh, win over all of the Congregationalists and Presbyterians, and they wanted a bishop to be sent over uh, for this purpose. Uh, Congregationalists and Presbyterians were united in their concern for religious liberty and were concerned with good reason that the suppression of civil liberty might also lead to the suppression of religious liberty. Historically, they knew how kings had used bishops to gain greater control over the church, and they feared that such a bishop, being part of the establishment, might be, might be empowered with authority even over non-Anglicans, uh, even those in other churches. And so in six, 1766, the Presbyterian Church, the Synod, uh, and the Consociated Churches of Connecticut formed an association. Now, it shows how how close the Congregationalist churches in Connecticut had come to becoming Presbyterian, almost Presbyterian, and that they didn't even call themselves Congregationalists anymore. They called themselves consociated, you know, like social and con put together. Um, that they, were, they had councils and, and were united in various ways. And those churches in Connecticut, the Presbyterians formed an association uh, with a regular convention so they could communicate better and for a united stand for the gospel and religious liberty and against the imposition of an American bishop. Um, the Stamp Act was the first part of this British policy and it was repealed and the Senate rejoiced. They saw that this threat had 
uh, come upon because they had not been sufficiently grateful for the victory of the French and Indian War, and so urged the, the, the people to give thanks both for the victory of the French and Indian War and for the repeal of the Stamp Act, and to return uh, for this favor a renewed uh, devotion to their God rather than risk his judgment by ingratitude. And in all the coming trials of the war, the pastors would remind the people to look beyond the British, look to the hand of providence, look to the Lord who is sovereign over all, and to humble yourself before the Lord in prayer and repentance. He is the one in control of all these things. As the war approached, Presbyterian pastors were generally careful to be pastors and not politicians. Um, And they would mention that when they did address politics, that um, directly addressing political issues of the day was more the exception than the rule, although they would come more topically to the, to the topic of one's duties in society uh, in the course of their preaching. Uh, preaching on politics directly was more the exception, and most often on special days of fasting and thanksgiving, where they would be interacting with the events of the day and, and uh, directing the people how to respond appropriately. Uh, but reform teaching on the magistrate, proper ways of resistance to tyranny over the centuries had had a strong influence on the colonies. And the pastors did not ignore the events of their time. Uh, they approved the struggle for American rights and liberties, and they gave pastoral exhortations to how to pursue that course in a godly way. And that's kind of the focus of the pastoral letter that was sent out by the Senate in uh, 1755. Just after war broke out, before independence had been declared, the Senate sends a pastoral letter to all the Presbyterians in the colonies, um, directing them, giving guidance on how to conduct themselves in the coming turmoil. Uh, It was drafted by John Witherspoon and exhorted them to resort to arms only if necessary, to seek only the preservation of those rights which belong to them as free men and Britons, and to desire reconciliation on those terms. So this wasn't a revolution seeking new rights, but to to defend the rights that that did belong to them. Uh, To honor, pray for, and observe the resolutions of the Continental Congress. Uh, To maintain their own church discipline, their good order, their duty to their neighbor and humanity, amid the temptations to go wild, you know, in, in the midst of uh, this p- potentially uh, civil war that was coming upon them. Uh, John Adams liked this letter. He sent a copy of it to his wife, Abigail Adams, and was also uh, excited with the, the preaching of the Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia, George Duffield, who was a future chaplain to the Continental Congress. On May 17, 1776, John Witherspoon preached a sermon on one of these days of prayer, special day of prayer, and he preached a sermon in Princeton called The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men. And in this sermon, he preached on God's providence and a right use of it and the importance of virtue. And in the midst of it, he did declare his opinion um, that the cause in which America is now in arms is the cause of justice, of liberty, and of human nature. Now, if you look on the back of your handout, there's several quotes from that sermon. And I know they're kind of long, but to give you an idea of the teaching of that time, let me uh, read, read a couple of these quotes. So there's, there's, I think, the second one there on promoting public virtue. Uh, one of his uses of, of providence. 
suffer me to recommend to you an attention to the public interest of religion, or in other words, zeal for the glory of God and the good of others. I have already endeavored to exhort sinners to repentance, and what I have here in view is to point out to you the concern which every good man ought to take in the national character and manners, and the means which he ought to use for promoting public virtue and bearing down impiety and vice. This is a matter of the utmost moment, and which ought to be well understood both in its nature and principles. Nothing is more certain than that a general... um, Prolificacy. Anyone know how to pronounce that one? Profligacy. Profligacy, yes. And corruption of manners makes a people ripe for destruction. A good form of government may hold the rotten materials together for some time, but beyond a certain pitch, even the best constitution will be ineffectual, and slavery must ensue. On the other hand, when the manners of a nation are pure, when true religion and internal principles maintain their vigor, The attempts of the most powerful enemies to oppress them are commonly baffled and disappointed. So he was exhorting the the Christians to have an eye to their their national character and manners and virtue. Uh, We might use the word culture, but I don't think that was a common word to use at that time. But their habits, their customs, um, and to to seek to um, have a, a leavening influence, if you will, on the society around them for their common good and to also have a zeal for the glory of God, you know, in doing so. That's piety is, is part of what he was seeking to promote. In his conclusion, this is what he says, Upon the whole, I beseech you to make a wise improvement of the present threatening aspect of public affairs and to remember that your duty to God, to your country, to your families, and to yourselves is the same. True religion is nothing else but an inward temper and outward conduct suited to your state and the circumstances and providence at any time. And as peace with God and conformity to him adds to the sweetest of created comforts, adds to the sweetness of created comforts while we possess them, so in times of difficulty and trial, it is the man of piety and inward principle that we may expect to find the uncorrupted patriot, the useful citizen, and the invincible soldier. God grant that in America, true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable, and that the unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to support and establish of both. Tend to the support and establishment of both. Um, This sermon made some waves, waves in its day, and it was actually only two months later that the Continental Congress approved the Declaration of Independence, you know, across the border in Philadelphia, and one of its signers was John Witherspoon as a delegate from New Jersey, and 11 other of the signers were Presbyterian members. Uh, speaking of Witherspoon, a member of the British Parliament said, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Uh, they had a particular parson in mind uh, when, when he said that. In fact, due to the strong support Presbyterians gave to the war effort uh, The war became known among many of the British as a Presbyterian war, especially since they often grouped the Congregationalists together with the Presbyterians. Um, In fact, some Tories believed the war was caused by a Presbyterian Congregationalist conspiracy to set up a Presbyterian establishment in the colonies. Uh, This was a rumor that the Presbyterians tried to dispel that that's, that's not the case, and that's one reason why they changed the Confession of Faith 
later on. But, uh, but there was that thinking because so many Presbyterians were behind it. Uh, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians sided with the Patriots quite earnestly, except for a few areas where local disputes uh, divided them. Uh, they were some of the most loyal troops that stuck by Washington at Valley Forge. Their Presbyterian ancestors had opposed tyranny under the authority of lower magistrates and legislatures in the British Civil War and in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and now they did it again. Uh, one Hessian captain fighting for the British wrote to a friend in Germany saying, call this, friend, call this war, dearest friend, by whatever name you may, only call it not an American revolution, it is nothing more or less than an Irish-Scotch-Presbyterian rebellion. Uh, you have to take those comments with a grain of salt because the guy is, is trying to put the patriot cause in a negative light, and if he can say that it's just a Presbyterian thing, then you know, that's part of his, his goal in doing so. But there was some plausibility uh, behind it. Now, my children probably remember the story of the pastor who passed out hymnals to the troops to give out uh, for the wadding, you know what I'm talking about? The, 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 Watts. Give them Watts, yes, yes, so everyone's heard it. Give them Watts, boys, uh, where the, uh, uh, they were running out of the wadding and he passed out. Well, he was a Presbyterian minister, James Caldwell. He was a chaplain in the Continental Army, and his wife had been killed by the British uh, shortly before. His house and church were burned down during the war, and then he was shot under questionable circumstances the next year, uh, possibly assassinated. That's, that's what people thought. Um, so one example of the suffering uh, that many Presbyterians suffered. I, I've heard, I've read that an estimated 50 Presbyterian church buildings were destroyed in the course of the war. As the war shifted to the south, the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians of the backcountry would provide important victories at Kings Mountain and Cowpens. At Kings Mountain, the Scotch-Irish frontiersmen had been encouraged by the preaching of Presbyterian minister Samuel Doak, and they were led by five colonels who were also Presbyterian elders, which probably made sense as they were some of the, the leaders in that community uh, as they went to war. Um, they were elected as, as colonels. And then uh, at Cowpens, Dan Daniel Morgan uh, defeated Tarleton there. He had come to faith during the war and uh, prayed before that battle and joined the Presbyterian Church uh, the next year. But not only did they fight, uh, the Presbyterians also emphasized the importance of rightly responding to trials, humbling themselves before God in prayer and repentance. Uh, both the Congress and the Senate repeatedly uh, set days to call people to repentance, to prayer, to thanksgiving, to new obedience throughout the war. Uh, the Presbyterians looked to God to deliver and to use this new country for good, uh, that he would cause uh, his, his gospel to blossom in the wilderness, to bear good fruit, that it would be a blessing even to the world. But they also realized the need for national repentance and reformation if this was to happen, and, and called uh, the country to it. Any questions at this point before we go to uh, the next thing? All right, so after the war was won, both the United States and the Presbyterian Church realized that a new constitution was needed. Both of them drew up their new constitutions in Philadelphia. In fact, in 1787, 
the Constitutional Convention of the U.S., met just a couple blocks from where the Senate of New York and Philadelphia met as it drew up its new proposed constitution. Um, It's like a half-mile walk or so uh, where they were meeting from uh, each other. In 1788, not only was the U.S. Constitution ratified, but revisions to the Westminster Standards were approved by the Senate. And the following year, 1789, not only was the U.S. Constitution implemented, but the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America met in Philadelphia. And the first moderator was none other than John Witherspoon, uh, who's continued to be an influential uh, character throughout this history. So the, what's now we could call the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, uh, they adopted a new form of government and directory of worship adapted from, from previous versions. It organized four senates under the authority of the General Assembly, and each senate had several presbyteries. Their General Assembly now became delegated, so each presbytery would send a certain number of people to the General Assembly, ministers and elders. It also adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms with a few revisions, uh, four revisions. The reference to the civil magistrate in the chapter on uh, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience was removed in its final paragraph. Uh, Secondly, the uh, third paragraph of chapter 23 on church-state relations was rewritten. Uh, Thirdly, the second paragraph of chapter 31 on calling church councils was rewritten and combined with the first paragraph. And fourthly, the phrase tolerating a false religion was omitted from the list of sins in the larger catechism uh, question about the second commandment. Uh, The most important change was probably the one to chapter 23 on the civil magistrate, and that reflected the new multi-denominational situation. They didn't really have denominations when the Westminster Assembly was written, not like we think of them. Uh, And so the only reference to denominations in this confession of faith is in this new portion. Um, There were multiple denominations now in in the land. It affirmed that the magistrate was to be the nursing father of, quote, the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. Uh, The the state should protect the church, preserve its liberty, and not interfere with or hinder the government and discipline of any denomination of Christians. Um, They did not change the previous paragraph's reference to the state Uh, or the magistrate maintaining uh, justice, peace, and piety. The Baptists had omitted piety. The Presbyterians still saw the magistrate having a role in promoting piety, but not by establishing one denomination above the rest or by interfering in its internal affairs. Uh, But it still was supposed to be a Christian country, uh, promoting virtue and and true religion uh, in ways appropriate to the civil magistrate. And so, both of them uh, were off, the church and the new government, uh, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, now grown, much larger, stretching uh, throughout the the colonies, and had played a role in establishing the independence of this country, and uh, country as well, preserving now both civil and religious liberty, Um, the Uh, Constitution making uh, a point of that, and uh, there was 
something set for them to go forward in. There, there was opportunity to do good, for God to use this country for good, for the church now to go forward uh, in the peace that now had uh, been accomplished to build up the church again, to press on further west. And so we'll come to that in our next lesson uh, as we go, uh, go west. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your providence, which is wise and good, that even the wrath of man shall praise you, that through both things good and evil you work your purpose and glorify your name. We pray that you would uh, direct us in this day to do good to our neighbor, uh, to uh, promote virtue and piety in our country, that you would turn the lost to salvation, and that you would reform our ways, our national character and manners in a way that is pleasing in your sight, wise and good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.